let's face it, 2020 and 2021 will not be remembered as great years. But in terms of being the worst years, it's not even close. Today, Harvard climatologist Alex Moore will give you his thoughts on the worst year to be alive. This episode is brought to you by the Podcast Services Division at Lifestuff Media. Having your own podcast allows you to creatively reach all types of audiences, from clients to prospects, to your most loyal membership base. And by utilizing studio affiliates located around the world, coupled with quality remote recording capabilities, Lifestuff Media makes having a corporate podcast easier than ever before. Contact us for a no-obligation consultation at info at lifestuff.com or visit lifestuff.com to learn more. This is Life's Tough, but explorers are tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have, and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore. It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Greetings to you wherever you are in the world, and I hope you're well. Our guest today, Dr. Alex Moore, is a Harvard climatologist. He grew up in Italy and Greece finished his education in America. And when it comes to climate, he's a bit of a Sherlock Holmes as he uses ice core samples from glaciers, historical records, nautical archaeology, volcanology, and the list goes on and on. At Harvard, he taught 10 different courses. And recently he was in the news for his theories on how conditions like cold and wet weather can affect pandemics and what that means for COVID-19. And if you look at his CV, and I do uh, encourage people to look Alex Moore up, he has probably more titles than anyone I know. Welcome to Life's Tough, Alex Moore. Hi, Alex. 
Hi, Richard. If only the paycheck uh, was uh, as big as the as as numerous as the title. Unfortunately, that's not the case. Well, let, let's go down the university list list because it's like you must have T-shirts that say Harvard University of Maine. You have Long Island University. What else do you have? What What are your titles, Alex? Uh, well, so first of all, the the. Uh, easiest way to know that somebody didn't go to Harvard is if they actually wear a Harvard t-shirt. We don't wear <laughs> the t-shirts. Uh, no bling for us. Uh, it's it's all it's all about uh, the research. It's all about the work. So I I, um, I came to this country as an immigrant at 17, and I uh, actually tried to finish high school, and that didn't work out in New York City because I ran out of money. So I moved to a Chicago small university. University of San Francisco took me in first semester, and then I moved to Washington University in St. Louis, where I got a job and a scholarship. Uh, there, there I got my um, BA, and then I wrote a thesis that got me into Harvard right away uh, for a PhD fully funded at 22, I think. Wow. Uh, did that, as soon as I got to Harvard, figured out that, I, that the program I was in was not really the right one. So I created my own interdisciplinary program to tackle uh, uh, well, the question was, why don't we have universal health care in America? That was the real question. And then uh, I chased that dog down 800 years uh, to figure out why somebody would come up with this idea of public health and, and uh, uh, universal health care. And I found the first instance of it. And it happened during a climate crisis. It happens. And then a pandemic. So that's where I started. Um, uh, after the PhD, I started a postdoc with the Climate Change Institute at the University of Maine, which, in my opinion, is the best place in the world to study climate change, uh, directed by Paul Majewski, a Paul, uh, Lowell Thomas fellow at the club, the Explorers Club, uh, really a fantastic group of, uh, of scientists from uh, all over the world uh, that are affiliated with it. And then most recently, two years ago, I was affiliated, I, I became affiliated, I teach at Long Island University in New York City, as uh, uh, I'm an associate professor of environmental health, as well as the director of the Honors College there. Uh, Alex, you, you, you mentioned in, in the beginning, if only uh, titles or institutes were dollars. And so in sports, uh, athletes are sort of measured by statistics. And if you're a finance business guy, you're measured in dollars and cents. So how are researchers and uh, academics sort of measured on that level? How do you me measure effectiveness? That's a good question. Uh, in several ways. Uh, it used to be a number of publications and then became quality of publications and then it became impact of publications and now it's not only impact but also uh, as in how many people cite you but also how many people see your things your uh your work and uh, in for that i think my i've been trying to adapt as as the standard changes and uh the the last standard uh is actually the one where um my work and my 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 team, we've succeeded the most. Uh, our latest article from September, for example, uh, on the impact of climate on the last great pandemic, the Spanish flu, is in the top 5% of all articles that have ever been tracked. Uh, so it's it, it's been seen by millions of people in multiple formats on CNN, Washington Post, uh, um, you know, Newsweek, uh, Japan, all, I mean, you can just, there's a huge list. They actually track these things now. 
through a thing called altimetrics. But there are other ways to, to track impact. Uh, how many people cite you? That's an H index. Uh, uh, and uh, the, the sheer number of publications. I don't have that many because, as you mentioned, the work is incredibly complex. And we work with the highest resolution climate record on the planet. We have one data point per year. That is, I can tell you what the climate was, the composition of the atmosphere was every day for the last 2,000 years, more, more or less. Which is in, in never, 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 that was never possible before. And uh, in addition, we have historical records, which you have to comb through papers and, and uh, lost manuscripts and archaeological records to actually uh, find. So uh, each article is groundbreaking. Each article has taken an enormous amount of time to put together, as opposed to, oh, look, I see a pattern in this, and here's, a, here's an article. We but, don't do that. But it's kind of interesting because you mentioned CNN, which is obviously um, a popular uh, media outlet. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what I'm discovering sort of in the world of exploration as I meet more people from different countries, and even um, you and I both know of a, a young poet named Amanda Gorman who did something called Earthrise, which was a spoken uh, word poem uh, that she she did I guess a couple of years ago when she was just getting out of Harvard and it hit people at a different level. Like there's the academic level and then there's the level that makes people sit up and think. So how do you, cause you are in a very academic environment and you're dealing with very smart people and numbers and, and graphs and charts, but ultimately how do you communicate this to, you know, maybe somebody you're the electrician in your apartment or a plumber or, or, or just the general public. Uh, you're totally right. And, and, you know, that was the reason why I switched out of, uh, uh, I was a pre-med student and, you know, I didn't want to do one patient at a time. I wanted to do millions. I wanted to help millions. And then I wanted to help uh, the ecosystem. Uh, so communication is the key. And uh, that's where programs like this or, you know, the, the Explorers Club and institutions like the Explorers Club really help because we have to tell our story uh, and we have to tell our story in, in terms that everybody understands. Uh, if, uh, if my papers, if my research is read by, um, you know, 100 people, I've failed. Uh, if my research doesn't make news, I've failed. Uh, that's my standard, by the way, not everybody else's. A lot of people just want to hide uh, in the book stacks and, uh, and the libraries. Uh, I, I welcome the criticism. I welcome the, the being uh, and, you know, in, uh, at the cutting edge. And uh, being first is usually a bad thing because you're going to get all the flack. Uh, but that's okay. That's exactly what we need to do. We have to have a conversation. And uh, so the way I relate to people is I, um, there are, I relate to the things that they care about. Generally, their health, um, uh, their wealth, uh, and uh, their, uh, their children, their families, the things that are uh, every day for them. Uh, if you relate to their own problems and relate them to the climate or relate it to a public health crisis, then, then you're connecting. And most importantly, I think, I never insult people. There is no point in calling somebody stupid. It's never going to make them feel any better about your data. They're but you want to call them stupid you. sometimes. You've heard climate deniers, and come on, Alex, you got to admit, it's you, easy to say these people are stupid. There is a tendency, but I mean, 
I mean, the thing is, not everybody has had the, the benefit of uh, an Ivy League education or even an education at all. And who am I? I come from a fishing village. What were the chances that, that I was going to come and, and do a... Well, let's uh, go back fishing. to that fishing village. So where were you born, Alex? I was born in Brindisi, Italy. Uh, actually, a fishing village in Brindisi, Italy called very creatively fishing village in italian i don't know why they call it that but that's where my uh my house was and um i grew up by the adriatic um actually learned how to sail near a castle just uh off, just about a half a mile from my house and started diving when i was three um and uh, uh then started basically going back and forth between uh Brindisi, which is the gateway to the east and Corfu, Greece, which is right the first stop, uh, where I uh, taught sailing and bartended or did whatever I could in order to get um, get uh, away from uh, rather depressed economy, I have to say. So that was uh, the you know who could have ever taught thought that uh, I would have made it to uh, to the United States or to get a, 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 an education and so I'm fair I'm fully aware that uh, many people don't have that benefit uh, and it takes now given the theme of your um, of your uh, podcast it takes a lot of resiliency uh, it takes uh, you know life is tough it throws a lot of stuff at you. Uh, and resiliency and, you know, patience and, uh, and uh, you know, just uh, determination is what gets you through. And, you know, uh, not yeah, everybody. But take me a little it. further back. So what were your, what your mom and dad, what were they like? Um, my, I was raised by my grandparents mostly. Uh, my, my grandfather was a physician my grandmother was a uh nurse that then became a, a housewife and um but you know ran everything and she was amazing uh, my mother was a clerk and my father was uh, did manage real estate for his father and did uh um but really was not uh really involved uh in business or really anything um so it was you know very average uh life they were divorced that's why i spent a lot of time with my uh grandparents they were very young when they had me and uh uh that's that you know the imprint came from uh, from them uh particularly my father was the person that took me underwater for the first time when i was three he strapped a tank on his back and put two regulators to it, one to his mouth and one to mine. And I had, and I was just floating there with a, with a regulator in my mouth, literally attached to him for dear life, because if the regulator came up, uh, I was done. Uh, but it just took me, you know, about uh, 10 feet underwater and uh, the world of exploration was open to me. And I thought, why isn't everybody doing this? Uh, this is I, I could say that, you know, I think that Everybody, when you talk to, you know, you and I have a lot of common friends, explorers, and often they will relate to a seminal moment when they were young, and it may have been inconsequential at the time, but when you look back later and you think, what a fantastic world I was introduced to at age three underwater. I mean, that's pretty cool, Alex. Yeah, I, I you know, I just... Uh, uh, I guess the 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 thing that really uh, you know it, that changed in me, uh, besides the fact that I really love being underwater or being in nature, and 
understand that butterfly effect. You know, if I change this, the animal is going to change its behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And then it'll change me. Uh, the one thing that I really appreciated, I think, was just doing something that other people weren't doing and not questioning it, not um, feeling like I was an outlier or uh, or being comfortable with being an outlier, uh, being comfortable with taking a path that not even the less drawed path, but the path that doesn't exist at all uh, and just creating it uh, for yourself and uh, just thinking outside the box. Um, yeah, so and that's, you know, how you get on a plane at 17 uh, with your hands shaking, with a, you know, a ticket in your hand, like. Well, how does that happen? I mean, you know, most guys, like when I was 17, I was raised like a veal. I had yeah. my mother and father and, you know, very safe environment. No, I'm only kidding on that. But um, at 17, how did you move to the United States and where did you move into with who? And how did that decision come about? So um, it's a silly story. Uh, it's like an unbelievable story. Uh, I was um, driving one night at my motorcycle a small scooter nothing enormous uh to my grandparents house and uh um there are no traffic stops really in italy because people just uh, as you know you have your your own italian blood people just go right through them uh, oh nobody's coming and they just uh and uh, i was coming and they didn't notice me and they just uh that drunk driver hit me fairly uh high speed and I got a refund from that, what is it called? A settlement from that, which was about $1,400 uh, in money from then, from the time. And I bought a ticket to the US. The first thing I did was I bought, I bought a ticket to New York City. Uh, that, that's that's what I, uh, you know, I, I couldn't. I, I, I know, but you do far. have parents and grandparents. Aren't they saying, Alex, I mean, I, I could not have done that. Let's put it this way. Not only could <laughs> I have not done that at 17 i wouldn't got my parents permission to do that so right how, the how did that happen really the problem the grandparents might have been and uh, the problem uh was uh i don't know if you remember y2k in 1999 sure. and uh, i just told my grandma look y2k is gonna come we're all gonna die can i please die in new york city i haven't seen it once uh and I think she, you know, she took the joke and and she she just said, okay, whatever, go do. You know, I I I had traveled already a lot. I travel all throughout Europe, and so you know, taking a leap across the Atlantic wasn't as uh, crazy. Uh, I moved here and I started staying in uh, on 63rd Street. I, I point south because I'm on Central Park West right now, uh, 63rd Street and Broadway at the uh, YMCA. And uh, I stayed there for quite a while, trying to make as much money as I could. Doing what? And uh, uh, working at Starbucks uh, and Lincoln Center. And so <laughs> you're not, do you have a, a high school equivalent of a diploma yet? Nope. And so what's the nope. game plan? You're, you're sort of, to some degree, a and are you even a legal immigrant at that point no i was uh i was uh uh no i was uh um uh so i had a um uh work study uh system that uh the international baccalaureate uh program allowed um and then uh, uh so i actually got into an international baccalaureate uh program uh, by just corresponding with somebody in new york city 
And but that didn't last very long. As I said, I ran out of money really fast. It's New York, New York City is expensive. Uh, so a friend of mine told me in Chicago, why don't you come here instead of going back? And uh, I, I went to Chicago and uh, visited various colleges and realized I didn't have to finish high school. I could take a GED. So I took a GED with uh, uh, various colorful characters. I'm not going to say what they did. And uh, um, passed that, TOEFL, SAT, ACT, all in about a couple of months. And I got into college. What college so did you get into? It was called University of San Francis in Joliet, Illinois. Okay. And uh, it was really cool college uh, that maybe had three or four halls, uh, library, and uh, they were very, very kind to take a chance on me. And uh, I had to get up at four in the morning to get on a bus to get there at six. Oh my God, I'm uh, exhausted. I'm cold. just, I'm exhausted hearing about you just getting from high school to college. Now, Alex, you had to innately be a smart person because most kids at seventeen going into 18 would be so far adrift this the overcome economically New York City and then the emotional level of really not having any family around you I mean those had to be super challenging times yeah that's that's definitely that was definitely uh something I'd never expected uh having uh, missing people I had gone to military school for a three or four months when I was in Italy, I, I got into this military college called uh, Up in Venice. And I didn't like it. And I remember missing my grandmother, particularly. I remember actually, I, I don't, I don't, uh, uh, I'm not ashamed to say I was crying on the phone, uh, just, just listening to her. And uh, uh, I kept, unfortunately, my grandmother died uh, uh, right after I, I, I moved here and, uh, or right, right before and right after. Uh, right before uh, I came here twice, at, and in between she died. So that was not uh, that was not a uh, I was not missing her anymore, or I was, but you know couldn't do anything about it. Um, but I was very I'm very grateful to the the friend uh, who then became a partner in uh, Chicago, who uh, you know she was just wonderful, and uh, we stayed together for five years, and then uh, and we moved together to St. Louis to Washington University. Uh, where I got my, um, my finally got my degree, and, and, how and does that, that was a real, you know, big university. And how does I've that jump now? You know, Harvard. You know, you can sort of be cavalier about it now, but how does one then get into a PhD program at Harvard? Right. So I wanted to be a doctor because my grandfather was a doctor, and I I, I love helping people. I love just I don't know. It's that giving thing. I guess I was raised that way. Uh, very Catholic. Very you know you got to do good works, help help people. And um, when I got here, the other culture shock was there is no healthcare, and what are you going to do? You know. Uh, I was one of the people that didn't have healthcare for a while, uh, and. Um, when I, I just realized in college, I can't be a doctor. I can't work in the system. I have to figure out what's wrong with it. And so I wrote a thesis, uh, trying to get at that. Uh, it was an interdisciplinary thesis in, uh, um, both public health, uh, economics, law, and, um, a bit of climate, uh, science, but not much. And um that thesis uh won me admission to harvard so most phds at that level are fully funded so it's a, just a question of applying and if they accept you then you've got a full ride for six years 
to to go to Harvard and you get paid a stipend and you teach after your second year. So that's what happened. I, I actually applied. I'm, I was very arrogant. I applied only to three pro programs. Uh, Harvard was one of them. And uh, uh, I got into only into Harvard. So that was, uh, so, you know, I remember it was the second happiest day of my life. Uh, I think the first really happy day was when I got my green card. Uh, and, you know, my life here was was set. And then I got the purple or crimson package in the mail or used to come in the mail, big, big package. Uh, and, you know, really, I think I jumped. You know, this is like the American success story. This is, you know, when I think about, you know, as we've discussed before, um, my mother's family is from uh, Coeur d'Alene, Sicily. Yes. And, which means you should be respecting me a little more, Alex. Yes, of course. <laughs> but uh, uh, I haven't received an offer I can't refuse yet. Yeah. So, but when people think of especially Ivy League institutes, they always talk about the ivory towers, right? And so there's kind of two ways it can go for you. You know, and I think the way it has gone from you, just knowing what I know, is because your journey, nothing was certain, you have to have a tremendous amount of empathy for other people. Because you, you've lived that life of, of loneliness, of uncertainty, of the existential question is, where is my life going? You, you've gone through things by the time you were 21 that I think people... Um, my age go through now. So, you know, how did that has to have of form formed you in a way that's, that's different, but maybe wonderfully different. Yeah, definitely. Empathy is, uh, um, it's uh, probably one of the, the emotions or, uh, character traits that, that, uh, define me the most, uh, uh, not, not to brag. I just, I just, I, I try to feel what other people are feeling at the same time uh, and or it just comes naturally. And uh, um, there is also a flaw to that, which is that there is the, uh, you know, you think you're feeling what they're feeling, but everybody's got a different story and everybody's got different uh, experiences. Uh, so it's a lot of it is it's sort of a fiction uh, in your head. You're, you're close to it, but you don't really know. Uh, especially if it's a woman or a person that has a completely different um, experience from yours. Uh, there are all sorts of experiences I could never have. And, and yet, and that form that person. Uh, and, and yet I think I'm empathizing with them. Uh, but I'm, I'm I certainly that comes naturally. Uh, but I, I, you know, I think that that's also one of the best qualities or, or one of the best attempts we can have in our lives because if you try and feel like I'll, I'll, you know, I have the emotional intelligence to understand how other people are feeling at the same time, especially in a team uh, or in a classroom, for example, which is uh, or in an audience, um, you can really respond to that uh, much better. You can you can um, make people feel valued more, and you know, I guess exercise a type of leadership that's that people call soft power, uh, rather than I don't like that that word, but uh, essentially, you know, having people work with you because they're loyal to you, not because uh, they want to be you or because they want to. They may want to be you, but uh, I, I don't. I don't aspire to that. I just, I just, you know, 
I'm uncomfortable when someone else is uncomfortable in the same room. And, and that's, that comes from the fact that, uh, yeah, uh, it's been a tough, uh, a tough 21 years uh, getting here. So Alex, when, when you, and again, I can sort of relate to this when I was at Brown is I met a lot of kids who really had a lot handed to them. I mean, they were born on third base and, you know, they go through life thinking they've hit a triple. So when you meet someone who's now in that same PhD program or maybe a professor and you see that their path has just been sort of everything conspiring and the whole team behind them to make them that, do you feel sorry for them or is this a little bit of um, resentment? Because the, the feel sorry is, I, I think that everyone imagines the triumph of overcoming a struggle, but if you really yeah. never did it, you don't have that feeling that, you know, you really did it yourself. Yeah. So um, it's a little bit like vaccinations, you know, uh, just to get, bring it, uh, bring it to today. Uh, there are two reactions when somebody gets, apparently there are two reactions when my friends or even my enemies, not that I have any, but when they get vaccinated, I'm happy. Um, I'm just, Oh, this person's being made safe. Great. Awesome. Um, I've heard, uh, even from my, my closest friends, they won't tell their parents if they're younger that they got vaccinated because they don't want their parents to be jealous or they don't want their parents to feel like, well, why you and not me? And that's just, that's just a, such an alien feeling, uh, to me. Uh, I, I just don't understand that. Uh, so if I see somebody and many, many people, if you start a PhD, just, uh, this is PSA for everybody. If you start a PhD today, uh, you better be independently wealthy because there are no jobs out there. So, uh, I mean, there's so few jobs uh, for uh, academics. It's extremely competitive. Uh, so, you know, you better be independently wealthy. And, you know, you're earning $2,000 a month uh, on a PhD. So it's it's essentially poverty. Uh, not that I blame Harvard or anybody else. Very <laughs> grateful. Thank you very much. Uh, but uh, that's that's what you're looking at, right? And... So no, I, I don't feel resentment. Um, I, th I think occasionally that those who have had those experiences uh, sort of uh, set for them uh, with much, much, much easier uh, way uh, to get through them um, are going to miss some uh, very, um, some very crucial moments, some very crucial uh, uh, moments of empathy where you you don't understand the full extent of a of what's happening of, of, of an event or a situation because you're just flying at you know 30,000 feet you're not down to the to you know on a Cessna bumping on the on the trees uh, and that's really you know it, it, it's a different experience I suppose but um, I don't blame anybody I, I try not to have anger or jealousy in my in, or hold on to I know, it. but it's, I come know. on, it's a human emotion. Sometimes it's, I, know, I, you know, I get it. I get it. You I can't mean, help it, look at somebody go, man, that dude's lucky. Yeah. You know, I mean, sometimes actually going back to what you were saying about communications, sometimes I see uh, research that is shoddy or not really, uh, you know, somebody who's kind of misrepresenting their, their credentials. There are lots on Twitter uh, these days, uh, you know, just created a, a persona out of nothing. And uh, they all of a sudden go viral with misinformation. 
Uh, that we've seen a lot of that, right? The last four years, particularly, a lot of misinformation about very crucial things. That 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 pisses me off. That that's you know we work so hard to uh, to represent the truth, and and you know we we're we don't make up stuff. And as a scientist or as a historian or economist. And and then when somebody just comes in and, and you know, you know, that he's going to get find out, you know, found out somebody's going to find out that they're a fraud eventually. And then my reputation, I have to live down that reputation. I have to live down that problem. Uh, so, um, yeah, that's that's what really gets me. And that's why I, I'm so uh, um, I'm so passionate about, uh, you know, running a program of lectures and program of Ampasser and you. Uh, at the Explorers Club because we vet and select the best people and the best science and, and amplify that for people that don't have the time to do that on their own. Uh, and that's, that's I think, the most important thing we can do uh, as, uh, as uh, you know, um, in, a, in a charity and nonprofit. Yeah, Alex, so, you know, one of the things I've enjoyed most about you is that you, when you come to, on a social level, sort of academic discussions. And I'm not talking about numbers and stuff, just any subject that it's really fun to talk to someone who has an interesting, educated point of view that lays out an argument so well. Recently, um, and I, I, I'll, I remember where I was, I was actually, it might've been pretty close to when the pandemic uh, just started. I was taking a train back from New York City to Connecticut. And I happened to see something pop up on a academic discussion on the worst year to be a human. And I think you um, were assigned, let's see, what year were you assigned? Um, oh, 1348, I think. Yeah, so 1348. So we had other people talking about different eras. And so when people think of 2020 and 21, pretty bad years. I know that my own uh, great-grandmother died in New York City uh, of the Spanish flu. And my grandmother had, was 12 and she had to take care of four younger uh, brothers and sisters. I could never really understand what she was talking about at the time because I had nothing to really compare it to. So take us back on, on some of those even worse years. Go back to uh, the plague. So the plague 1348 was what we call the second pandemic. Uh, um, and the first pandemic was 542 five, to, until 700 actually. Uh, so that, that was 1400 years ago. The plague uh, was, <clears throat> the, the second pandemic was uh, 1346, if you start in the Black Sea, all the way to uh, really 1700, it continued uh, coming back. But um, it, it started um, in, in Italy uh, because all the ports were in Italy. Uh, so Sicily was the first one to hit it, to, to get it in, uh, in Europe and then continued to Genoa and Venice uh, and then throughout Europe. And we actually have mapped this. You can see the, I have an animations that we are about to publish where you can see the, 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 the spread and oddly the same you're going to be the first ones to know uh, the same spots that uh, that had the concentration of COVID victims during COVID have, have were the same spots that we had during the Black Death. The difference, the major difference, is that the Black Deaths, which was a plague, as in a, a bacterium called Yersinia pestis, um, what had a, a death rate of forty to sixty percent. 
So today you might know somebody who got it, who got COVID. You might know a friend of a friend who died. You might have a friend who died, um, maybe a, uh, an elderly uh, um, relative. When you have 40 to 60% of the population die, uh, you see that you think New York City's empty now. Uh, it, it just, it's, it's a flattening. Uh, you, it's, a, it's an emptying of everything. You, your neighbors don't, aren't, aren't there anymore. You're the only, you're the 40%. You're the, the, result, the, the remaining uh, person. Um, the economy uh, absolutely uh, flattened, the plummeted. Uh, in fact, we can only, it's the only five years, uh, 48 to uh, 52, 53, it's the only five years in human history where the air, uh, the, we, we can actually measure the air being completely clean because nobody was doing anything. There was no mining, no commercial, no nothing. That's just, that, that's, that's how we know that uh, it was really terrible. Uh, and we actually discovered this, I, I published in 2017 and people said, it can't be possible. They must've continued doing something. Uh, you know, it can't be possible that pollution stops when uh, when uh, pandemics are out, around, and that's exactly what happened uh, during COVID as well, although uh, to a lesser extent. So um, the Black Death collapsed civilization uh, in many ways, collapsed the con economy, collapsed the healthcare system, uh, as, uh, such as it was, and it actually uh, helped. Uh, strengthen what was there in certain certain countries. That's why public health was really born uh, just before and then after. Um, and you know the Spanish flu, which was hundred years ago, also had rather high death rate. Uh, Fifty million people died. Fifty million. That's the the, That's the population of Italy. That's the population of of you know. It's it's huge. Um, and 500 million uh, f uh, got infected. That's one third of the world population. We're we're 50 million infected today, and five million dead. So we are an order of magnitude lower. We're you know a lot. So 2020 has been really terrible. And uh, this is not to diminish anybody's experience through COVID. Uh, I have many friends uh, who have uh, were infected and some who died. Uh, and I'm not saying that I'm not sorry, and I, I, I very much feel for them, but it's not the worst year ever. Our economy is still here. Uh, we're still here, most of us, and uh, we've just learned that we can do things differently. Uh, we can do this, what we're just doing. Uh, we can still keep in touch. Imagine, uh, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a, uh, uh, what, what's the word? It's just a sort of a short story that people tell about the Black Death that you can find etched in different languages all throughout Europe on churches and cemeteries. And it said, and one line says, and father would not go to son and son would not go to father because they didn't want to infect each other. So imagine that lasting five years, imagine that lasting 20 years uh, and not knowing whether you're going to be okay or not. Uh, right? Yeah. Whether, whether, okay, is it safe now? Is it safe now? Uh, you know, and that, that insecurity continuing for decades uh, and it coming back in waves that, I mean, the 1660s, 1630s, 1600s, still black death, still happening. Uh, we, we're so lucky that we can do this. 
we're so lucky that we can uh, see all our friends on Monday nights and Thursday nights and, and every other event, you know, and um, we're, we're so lucky that we've just learned uh, uh, in, in a way that we that technology and medicine have advanced so fast. Uh, I mean, imagine a vaccine in less than a year. Uh, That's pretty incredible. You know? It's pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's only thanks to CRISPR and new technology that's only come out in the last 20 years. Um, so, Alex, so take, us, so take us now through, I know that um, we talked a little about butterfly effect, that things aren't singular events to themselves. Mm -hmm. And so you've been really kind of groundbreaking, or at least the, your, you and your colleagues, on pinning um, pandemics like uh, COVID-19 uh, to climate, how, how does that work? So, uh, COVID COVID nineteen. So far, we 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 know that that climate can affect it, but we haven't uh, we haven't said that it, it's uh, that it, nobody's uh, uh, figured out that it's connected to climate. And uh, in, in a sense, as as its emergence is not connected to climate, it's connected to wildlife trade, which should be banned. And I say it in every interview. It's the first thing we can do to say to safeguard the world is to ban wildlife trade entirely um uh and that's that's most likely where it emerged right out, out of a wildlife trade market uh and then and spread but uh in other pandemics uh including this one uh climate certainly has a, an effect for example uh the spanish flu a uh, hundred years ago uh which came right at the tail end of world war one uh, when the war was still going, there was uh, it started uh, with uh, uh, it's it's strange it's like a, an eerie parallel in February of 1918. You know, just about a century and a and, and a year uh, before ours. In February it started happening, and the first wave was called benign because it was didn't kill as many people. Uh, and then it really popped up in the fall, second wave, September, October, just like the second wave we have we had last uh, last fall. And we saw I, I discovered uh, with my colleagues uh, a climate anomaly that uh, influenced uh, Europe, particularly uh, where where this really uh, this pandemic really uh, caught fire. Um, uh, climate anomaly uh, right over uh, Britain and Northern France and Belgium and Germany. Uh, and you can see this blob on the on the articles and you know in the, in the media, this blob of uh, low pressure, which basically means a lot of rain and cold. And uh, that continued just lingering there. It's not like uh, weather that stays, you know, it stays there for a couple of days and goes away. No, it stayed there for six years. It stayed there during the war. And I'll explain to you why it stayed there. But the effect of it was, uh, first of all, to flood the trenches, flood the battlefields, flood the cities. And when, when there's flood like this, as you know from hurricanes today, when you have floods, water gets contaminated. That's why you get cholera epidemics every time you have a hurricane. Uh, well, in this case, it affected um, also the migration of the main vector and the main carrier of this disease, which is birds. Uh, birds are very, very sensitive to to climate and winds and uh, uh, and the sun. And if they can't see where the sun is, and if they can't uh, uh, fly with the wind, uh, they stay put. And that's exactly what happened. Turns out these birds, I know it's a, a long cycle, but we live in a complex world. These birds are uh, reaching 60% infected uh, infection rates in uh, in the fall. 
And they stayed put in the in the lakes that were giving water to the trenches, giving water to people, uh, rivers, uh, and they contaminated them with their waste. Um, their waste becomes, uh, you know, it's virally infected for two weeks once it's in the water, and that we we know that this is uh, this is a, a, an effect. There are many programs tracking flu uh, uh, through birds in the U.S. in the Delaware River and. So it's a pattern that we recognize in the modern world, but we don't understand why. I don't. I never understood why uh, nobody had looked at this in the past. The reason why we had the climate anomaly, um, Paul Majewski and I believe that it was due to the fact that we were bombing Europe more than ever before with both planes and cannons. And this constant bombing was causing dust to go up in the air. And as dust goes up in the air, water molecules find the dust particles and they like them and they kind of hug and they create droplets and that's rain. And so we kept it there with our fighting. Uh, in fact, the climate anomaly disappeared after the, the, the end of the war on the 11th of November, 1918. Uh, it actually uh, disappeared shortly thereafter. So uh, we live in a complex world and uh, you know, preventing new pandemics and preventing the the, the degradation of our world that we love so much. You and I, you know, are nature lovers, and uh, it really requires that complex, uh, that complexity, understanding that complexity, and and understanding that uh, we live in an interdisciplinary world. We have to learn all of these disciplines to understand. Alex, I started this uh, conversation in your introduction, saying that you were like a, a Sherlock Holmes putting bits of information, but um, I'd like to thank you for taking that plane ride from that fishing village to do what you do. I think that um, that the world can only prosper through enlightened thought. And uh, th there is a historical uh, precedent for enlightenment coming from Italy. And so I, I'd, <laughs> like, I, I'd yes. like to thank you for being on Life's Tough, But Explorers Are Tougher. Thank you for having me. Every great expedition has to come to an end, but that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.